Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the pleasure of having Dr. William H. Johnson with us. He began his career in education in 1967 as a special education teacher in Bridgeport, Connecticut. In 1986, he was appointed superintendent of schools in Rockville Center. During his three decades as superintendent, the school district has continued to grow in excellence. Southside High School, an international baccalaureate school with its rigorous education program, has achieved a 99% Regents graduation rate in 2016 with 86% of students achieving advanced designation. In addition, in 2016, 37% of students at Southside High School achieved an international baccalaureate diploma. Southside High School has been written up in various newspapers as a school known to close the achievement gap for poor and minority students. He was named New York State Superintendent of the Year in 2005. He served as the president of the Nassau County and New York State Council of School Superintendents and is currently co-chairperson of the New York State Council of School Superintendents Curriculum Committee. As recently as March 2015, he was recognized as one of Education Week's leaders to learn from. Sixteen exceptional district-level leaders are acknowledged each year for their creative but practical solutions to improve their school systems. In 2016, Dr. Johnson was honored by Erase Racism as a radical equity pioneer. So welcome, Dr. William Johnson. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. And I'm excited about the opportunity. It's rare that we have an opportunity sometimes in our positions to reflect on what it is that you do and share it with others. So great opportunity. And this is why we're doing this. Bill, can you tell us about your path? to leadership? I think it was backwards. I really never aspired to a position that I now currently hold. Most of my career was really focused on research. And, you know, everyone always looks for somebody who inspired them. And I can remember my grandmother telling me when I was a little kid, and I loved her dearly. And she said, you're going to change things. Wow. She said, remember this. She said, you're on this earth for a purpose. You're going to change things. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from? How old were you? I was probably about nine or 10 years of age. I remember visiting her in Brooklyn 
we were sitting in her living room. I don't remember exactly what the rest of the conversation was about, but it's like sometimes passages like that just get seared in your brain, can be life-altering. And somehow or another, it's like, why did she say that? Pivotal Do you, moment. Yeah. It was. And what it does, it changes your whole perspective about yourself. It's like you have this added responsibility in life right now to make sure that things when you're done are different than when you started. Mm. I think it starts when you're young, when you begin to develop a sense of yourself. I was always fascinated with student government. I wanted to edit the newspaper, which I did. Little things that I think are suggestive of roles that you can take on later on. Actually, when I uh, began my my teaching career was in special education, and then I moved on later to a university position. I was a teacher at Fairfield University for 11 years. I love the work. I'm a special educator. So Are you really? Yes, I am. You know, it's such a different world now. And quite frankly, when I began special education, we were trying to figure out how to get more kids involved in special ed. And now the world has changed and we're trying to figure out how to get kids not to be involved in special ed. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to move them into regular class and out of the special service model and provide them with all those skills. So, I mean, it's funny how the world has changed significantly. I think to some extent, it's adversity sometimes that shapes you. And whether it was fortunate or unfortunate, my first experience as a teacher involved a certain amount of adversity that I didn't look for, but in fact enabled me to kind of frame the rest of my career around issues that I felt needed to be resolved. And I'm still trying to teach that very same group of 12 kids that I started with in Bridgeport in 1967. Wow. So the fascinating thing is, is that they taught me what I needed to be as the teacher, a learner, and a leader. And essentially it was that these kids, many of them were misidentified at the time. They didn't know what was the problem with these kids. The majority of the kids that I had were identified then as mentally retarded, which was basically the only category that they had to work with. And we began to discover at the time that these kids were not retarded at all, but other things were going on that Mm -hmm. caused them to be placed in a special class of teenage boys and girls 13 to 17. But I was located in an elementary school. And the then principal, when I first was introduced to her, told me, I remember her words very well as well. She wasn't very grandmotherly, but she was pretty adamant about the fact that she didn't want my class in the building and that I didn't have the use of all the facilities and that if I wanted to use the gym, I had to do it when nobody else was going to be there. I didn't have to work on their bell schedule. She didn't want the kids coming in when the other kids were coming in. So there were a lot of rules and regulations. So I was pretty much on my own. And when I went to my classroom for the very first time, I will never forget what I saw. I walked into the classroom and as I began to open up the clock, they were filled with potholders. And it's like, oh my God, what happened to these kids the year before if this is what they Mm -hmm. have to show for what they did for an entire year? So it began really as an odyssey to try to figure out how to make a place in the world for these kids, provide them with whatever the meaningful skills that they needed. And I knew that they didn't belong in my class. They were not mentally retarded, and there was no reason why every one of them could not find their way in this world. So I guess if there is a single word that I would say, it was all about equity, and still is to this day. If there is anything that has really defined the role and the contributions that I have been able to make here in this little community of Rockville Center, and to the larger community when I was both at the university and to to the extent that I'm able to engage in a variety of different leadership activities, both at the state level and to a lesser extent, but at the national level as well, really has to deal with and try to solve the equity issue that this nation faces and that we as an educational system face. I mean, it's fascinating. It's the love of my life. 
I can tell. I mean, I wish our listeners can see your face and <laughs> the passion that's coming through oh. your eyes. But also, I did read about what you have been doing. And one of the things that to me was very moving is the fact that your bio says that Southside High School has been written up in various newspapers as a school known to close the achievement gap for poor and minority students. Right. And that's big. You know, the kids that I worked with in Bridgeport were poor and minority. And what I discovered was that they were considered to some extent by the system at the time as throwaways. And I discovered very quickly that they could learn. And there was no reason in the world why they shouldn't, except that we hadn't figured out and designed a system that made sense for them. So we've spent the rest of my life trying to figure that out. I think back to those 12 kids that I started with, and really, I'm still trying to educate that group of kids. But when you talk about the achievement gap, I mean, it's easy to to speak about and to say what we've tried to do here, it's taken the better part of 30 years to figure out what works and what doesn't. The goal has never changed, and the mantra that we use in the school district is essentially all means all. I say it every year when I speak to the teachers when we return to school. It's always a theme of what it is that we discuss year in and year out. Is that a conversation that you have with students as well? I tend to get involved with small groups of students or individual students. When we talk about leadership style, I really like to impart on all of the people who work with me or for me the opportunity to shine. Tell us about that. I want them to own their school. I want people to look at the school and, you know, it's just not Southside High School. It's John Murphy's school. It's Carol Burris's school. I wanted to take on a character that is truly imbued with the value system that these people bring to their leadership style and then work with them as a supporter, as an asset, as a resource, as a teacher. I want strong leaders in the building, and I believe that that is an absolute necessity for bringing about the changes that you need at the more granular level, which is in the classroom, in the instructional settings that we have within the school district, and certainly throughout the entire district and at the building level as well. I want to talk a little bit about how you say you offer or you want to give them an opportunity to shine. How important is that for a leader? How important is that in a school that your leaders have that opportunity to shine? Anybody who's sit in this job for as long as I have, and I've been in this job now for 31 years, knows that you make lots of mistakes. What I don't want a good leader to do is to be afraid of making a mistake. So I want them to be able to be creative, take charge of the day-to-day -day operation of their facility, and I want them to take on a real teaching role as supervisor, as observer, as evaluator of staff. So we focus a lot on the relationship that exists between our building leaders and the people who work for them in the classrooms. The sine qua non for all of that is what is learning all about? What is the content that you want? We have developed within this system, I think, a sense, and it began way back in the 1980s, of every single child who goes through this system will, in fact, be prepared to continue their education when they finish with us. So the mantra today is college and career ready. When we first put that together, we weren't really thinking in terms of that combination, but we wanted kids to be college ready. So we adopted the International Baccalaureate Program. I also believe very strongly and going with external validators, which meant that we were not going to develop this on our own unless we had like a referee outside the district who knew more than we did, had worked internationally with various curricula and knew how to prepare kids 
or knew what the expectations should be in order to get kids ready for productive university life. And we felt very strongly that the International Baccalaureate Program did just that. So we've used them over the years to help train our staff, certainly get our kids involved. And even though we are a school district that has a single high school and therefore there is no selection process except the fact that you live here, we now have 100% of our kids. And it's very rare. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the more select programs that exist nationwide that prepare kids for college. We don't believe that at all anymore. All of our kids, and I mean all of our kids, are in an IB English class and an IB Social Studies class. And how did that happen? We detrack. I mean, detracking has a real negative connotation in many circles. The flip side of that is that we offer a single curriculum for all kids. So again, one of those things that we talk about is that I own the curriculum, teachers and principals own instruction. I own the what, they own the how. They're going to figure out how to do it. So we truly believe that every single child should be exposed to the highest level curriculum. So we literally took what existed in the 1980s and early 90s as the honors curriculum and then adopted it for all students in the school district from kindergarten through grade 12. So we have all of our special ed kids in regular classrooms. We do not have a gifted program. And we have fully integrated math classes, English classes, social studies. I mean, there are some selections that kids make. So not everybody's in music. Not everybody takes Spanish. Some take French. So there are ways in which the population is divided. But within all of the core subject areas, everyone is exposed to exactly the same curriculum. We make no distinction whatsoever. Therefore, the burden is not on the student. In other words, we don't select students on the basis of who we think is going to succeed or not succeed. All students will succeed, and it's up to us to figure out and design the plan to help for them getting succeed. them there. So it makes life very interesting, very exciting, very challenging, because we are constantly in a state of flux. Nothing is the same from year to year mm-hmm. because the kids that walk in our door continue to change as time goes on, which makes it a very exciting environment to work in. It's great to I hear. love it. You love change. I do. I love the fact that you said that you focus on creativity and that your leaders aren't afraid to take risks because that's a foundation to help people to grow. The fact that you're approachable, that they can come to you and have conversations with you about what they're doing is wonderful. I'm so excited that our listeners get to hear that. Can you tell us about a quote on leadership that speaks to you? I don't rely on that when I raised the issue before about creativity. You know, my heroes are the people I work with. I want them to be. My colleagues are superintendents. I don't really need to leave Rockville Center because I can create heroes. I don't need to go outside a whole lot. Even though we use external validators to help us out tremendously, and I send people all over the place to be trained on various new ideas and new skills, it doesn't mean that I have a particular quote. You know what I was thinking about your grandmother? Because even though it's not a quote, it compelled you, and it still does, because it's one of the first things we talked about. It is, and there was fire in her eyes when she said it. She's been long gone, but it's something that I carry with me for the rest of my life, whatever. It's inspirational. It did inspire. And at the same time, it was as if she laid on me a responsibility that as a kid, you really weren't thinking about. But she was very intent on making sure that I knew that somewhere down the road, I was going to change things and that I better do it. (laughs) Or she someplace was going to make sure that I was going to do it right. (laughs) Um, So I think we touched on this a little bit, but I want to kind of unpack it. What type of leader are you inspired by and why? Leaders who are involved, you have to learn how to operate at a distance, but you still have to feel comfortable in being part of the granular part of what it is that your service agency wants to provide. In our case, that's what it is, service. 
I mean, we are in the business of serving this community and educating our children. This organization is very flat. I don't have a lot of people in between myself and the direct services. So the line positions in Rockville Center, teacher, principal, superintendent. Everybody else in between are support staff. Nobody answers to anybody else. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I don't have a number of assistants or directors or anybody else in between my office and the principal and then between the principals and the teachers. Teachers answer directly to principals. Principals answer directly to me. This is not a huge system. And I understand why when you begin to get into much larger systems than this one, you have to develop models. But again, from the point of view of the flat world in which we can create, I think the flatter the better. So that people feel always that they have access, are accountable. And interestingly enough, even the community, it's a very short line to the superintendent. So when there are problems that need to be resolved, teacher, principal, they're not going through 28 different channels before they get to my office. That was done very intentionally. I want to stay close. You know, one of the things that is required of every administrator who works in the school district, even the business official, is that they have to observe teachers. And they are involved in getting into the classroom, sitting down and observing instruction, reflecting on it, writing it up, and then having a discussion with the teacher afterwards. Now, it may is not it be- Is it like a coaching model? That's the principal. That's their job. If I could pick a word, that's a very good way of saying it. Principals are coaches. However, I believe that the superintendent and everybody in my office, in order to keep a finger on the pulse of what is happening and what makes us work well, is that we've got to be in the classroom on a regular basis. And just not be there, but to be there for a reason. And that is to learn, along with the teachers, what is in fact working effectively. And so we all do 20 to 25 observations a year, and it's wonderful. It is a great way to feel the pulse of the organization. Well, more than that, it teaches you what works. I mean, when you talk about the learning experience, I don't have to go to a session with somebody else. My sessions are with the teachers who are working with our kids. I learn from them what works and what doesn't. And I can see firsthand if it is, in fact, being effective. Now, you mentioned you have to operate at a distance. What does that mean? I am sometimes the judge and jury on certain things. I have to make decisions. I recommend people for employment. If people are not doing their job, I have to recommend that they find employment elsewhere. I have to solve problems sometimes that are very complicated and complex that involves conflicts between parents and and other families, between Mm -hmm. parents and teachers, between parents, teachers, and principals, between and among staff members. I have unions to deal with. So to some extent, I have to be able to stand back and hop in my helicopter and go to 1,000 or 10,000 feet and begin to take a look at the district from something other than that granular view in the classroom and understand that from a policy level, that distance allows me to make decisions that have implications beyond just the incident that I'm dealing with. And that's what I mean. So, But you have to strike a balance between mm-hmm. that granular feeling that you want that's part of the heart and soul of what we were as a teacher and then the totally objective judge that has to stand above the entire organization and, in fact, understand that the implications of decisions that you make from a policy point of view and the impact that this may have on the system over an extended period of time. Now, can you tell us the best advice you've received? It may seem strange. I have a brother who is disabled. Mm-hmm. And not that either he or I are in the business of giving each other advice. And it may seem just so simple. It's be who you are. That's great advice. Don't try to be somebody else. And don't be afraid to expose yourself. And I learned that from him, even when he was a little guy, who was not afraid. I mean, he's very physically disabled. And he was not afraid to be disabled. This was him. Love me for 
who I am, not necessarily because I can't walk, but can walk. And it was a lesson that, again, when you talk about things that inspire you, I mean, simple things that he said, be who you are. That's powerful. Very simple, very powerful, and came from my younger kid brother. I love it. So, (laughs) you know, again, sometimes you don't have to go very far. I mean, people have given me some really good sage advice about particular issues, but sometimes the things that really tug at your heart and get into your head are the things that come from people who are very close to you and know you. Mm-hmm. My grandmother knew me and my brother and knew your me. Brother knew you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about teams. What does it mean to have a good team and how would you build one? You know, the whole team concept sometimes troubles me a little bit because teams usually mean competition in America because they are so closely aligned with and associated with competition. The way in which I view a team is the collaborative part of what we do well. It's the ability of the people with whom I work to be who they are, take a piece of them and share it with all of us on particular issues, and make a difference with this. Now, how do you build a team or build collaboration? It gets back to some extent what I said to you earlier about making sure that the principals own their building. I want every single person in the to own their job, define their job. I hate the idea of giving them a whole list of things that is their job description. And that goes with the business official. It goes with the person who manages and controls and works in our curriculum area. It goes with the person who does our testing and statistics. It goes with the person who works on all of our special programs. Each and every one of these people, not positions, every one of these people can make a difference. The more you can begin to treat them as equals, the more they feel that they have a piece of this organization in their heart. How do you cultivate that in the people you lead? Because they may not come that way. They know pretty soon after they arrive that they are responsible for, and that I'm not going to intrude. I spend a lot of time with my staff members reviewing what it is that both they and we do together and imbuing them with real authority so that at the end of the day, if, for example, it's a plan to bring more technology into our middle school, putting together a plan for that, I don't have to do it. At the end of the day, I want not just one person. I will present it as a problem for the entire team to deal with. One person will be responsible, but then they bring it back and we work together on this thing. You know, there are some people who believe that intelligence is just singly in your own brain. I don't believe that I believe that by putting three or four good minds together in a room and allowing each of our minds to work cooperatively and collaboratively with one another, there is something different about the outcome. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing phenomenon that you can actually watch happen, how thoughts are developed into people concurrently and how they complement or grow together. And when you put together a group like that, you know, it's like group intelligence. And I think it engenders more creativity, not less. And coming up with new ideas to take on a group of kids as they enter your system who continue to challenge us. I mean, just take a look at what technology has done to our world. And I mean, I can tell you that 10 years ago, we didn't have but a handful of computers and a few labs in the school district. Now they're in the hands of every single kid in the district. And so we've completely transformed the entire system to be technology-based. Holy smokes, how did that happen? And it is because all of the people were able to pull together ideas continually from the classroom teachers to 
the principals, to the directors, to the assistant superintendents. And uh, isn't it beautiful how you have different generations that give <coughs> input and they have a completely different perspective on things? Oh, and kids too, by the way, have taught us a lot about technology. You have to sometimes rely upon them. We had a couple of middle school kids who actually broke into our system and then had to come back and teach us how to secure it. So, you know, you, you learn from whomever sometimes. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Look, you know what? I don't like to deal with negatives. I think any good experience in life can be defined as a positive. Any worthwhile experience can be defined in a positive way. You know, it's like the word detracking carries with it so much negative. It's, there's a negative component to it. I truly like to see it as being an offering of a single challenging curriculum to every child. The world is different depending on... I mean, How you frame it. Yes. I agree 100%. Words are very powerful. Yes. They do make a difference. You are absolutely correct. Now, you said that adversity shapes you. Tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it's shaped your life. Again, going back to my brother Paul, in the days that he was growing up in the 50s and early 60s, and again, he was very severely disabled. Mm -hmm. And in those days, people in our neighborhood didn't want to see him. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to see him. A group of them came to visit my mom and dad in the house, sat us down in our living room, and said, we understand that you love him and you want him at home. Don't bring him outside. We do not want our children exposed. They should not have to see him. And I remember- you were there? Yes, I sat in the living room with my parents. I'm I'm the oldest of seven. I started to cry, and I said, they can't say that to you, Mommy. Mm. And she said, you're right, and you know what? Then the following day, he had this little metal car that had a motor on it that my parents had bought. I took him out, put him on the sidewalk, and walked with him up and down the sidewalk on that street. The beginning of your advocacy. I said, there's no way in hell these people are not gonna get to know him the way I do. I love them. They got to know him and loved him, but they couldn't do that unless they got to know him and experience him. You had an influence on all those people. Because of your love for your brother. It changed my life. I will never be the same because And I can see the thread that runs from that and then how you advocate for children with disabilities. I do. I mean, that has always been one of the underlying pieces. I mean, I started as a special ed teacher when I taught at Fairfield University. I taught in their department. My whole degree at Columbia was actually directed. I thought I was going to work in the world of research. (laughs) Little did I know I was going to end up here. Who knew? I wanted to try something at Rockville Center at the time. Again, getting back to one of the questions you asked earlier about your path, I never said no to an opportunity for something new in a job. So that I ended up actually here in the, as a director of special ed. I wanted to take this job here. It was offered to me when I was here as a consultant setting up a special ed department in Rockville Center. Yeah, I applied for the job and they wanted me. And I mean, it was just kind of a mutual admiration society at the time. But after that, I held every job in central office. Every time somebody left, somebody would say, well, do you want to do it? And I kept saying, yes, yes. But it has enabled me to round out. There isn't a single job in this office. If somebody leaves, I can't go up to their desk, sit down and do their work. I've had every one of their jobs. That's uh, powerful because as a leader now who knows what it's like to sit in their position. Well, including the business office. Yeah. The last job I had, interestingly enough, and I never in a thousand years would have thought that I would ever be a business official, but I was. And it was just amazing. It was an amazing experience. And it was the last I held before I became superintendent. You know, I'm not sure that every opportunity is always the best, but I never said no, even though sometimes it meant making less money. There's always a downside, almost every choice that you have to make. There's uh, a risk. To me, every single thing that I ever did taught me something new about what I could do down the road. 
Now, tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you. Again, it sounds so simple. It was a goal that I had for about 20 years. I never gave up on it, never thinking that we would be able to actually get all of our kids into an IB course. The IB curriculum is a very, very challenging curriculum. And up until four years ago, we used to get close to, but never all of our kids into those courses. What it signaled to me was that the genius of great educational systems is that if you have these incredibly high expectations and stick around long enough, you in fact may find out that your goal is actually realizable. And so don't be afraid to stay in, in a leadership position such as my own. I mean, I love it. I've had many opportunities to go elsewhere and to do other things. And I've always made the decision to stay here in this position position because I always felt that this is where the action is, shaping a system and making it work effectively for kids. But again, getting back to always having that goal in my head that literally 100% of our kids, now we have some really severely disabled kids that we have taken back from some of the out-of-district placements that they used to be in. And those kids are not in those classes, but every other kid is. So we have inclusion sections of IB. So they're still part of the community. Absolutely. But when I say inclusion, I mean our special ed kids, the inclusion kids, the resource room kids. They are all in these classes. And what I have found is that if we have high expectations and don't give kids the opportunity to excuse themselves, they won't. If you and I were to look at one another and say, hmm, I'm not sure if you're really good enough to get into that class, but there's always a but. But if I tell you you are good enough and you're going to show me that you're good enough, and that at the end of the day, you're going to be the same as everybody else. I don't care what the color of your skin, what the language is that you spoke when you first came to America, or what your family speaks at home. I don't care whether or not you have money or don't, what kind of clothes you wear to school every day, what kind of sneakers you wear to school every day. You're going to be challenged the same as everybody else. And you know what? Kids begin to see that there really is something of equality among them that when they are in a social situation, which a classroom is all about, they can be like everybody else, even though they are very different. Don't look the same, don't sound the same, don't dress the same, maybe don't even think exactly the same. But if you have exactly the same expectations for all of those kids, then all I can tell you is that they will ultimately, and they taught me this. Isn't that funny how much children teach us? It is amazing. When you have those expectations, kids will rise to that level. But you have to have it to start. And if you have a system where kids only begin to believe that they are good if you tell them they are, in a system where they have to earn their weight to being smart, they will. And they will figure out how to do it. So one of the things that we learned years ago about gifted, that because I told a kid he was smart didn't mean that he behaved like he was smart. And that since we've gotten rid of that, kids rise to the level. They will create their intelligence. And I truly believe that it's not a static entity that we have to give a test to find out what whether you have 120 IQ or 125 IQ. Who cares? My sentiments, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't matter. What right. matters is that you're willing to work cooperatively with a teacher, with your classmates, and that you're willing to take on the challenges that those teachers present to you on a day-to-day basis. That formula, when you put it all together, mm-hmm. as long as those teacher has high expectation for everyone, it works. It's a practice. You know, it's really a recognition of what we mean by human potential and understanding how development can be altered, can be accelerated, can be improved, can be made so different, but at the same time equal for all kids. You go into our classrooms, it'll knock you out of your sock sometimes to see some of the poorest kids with some of the will. And we have 
the extremes in this community. But you know, Dr. Johnson, when someone values you, just like your grandmother valued you, you valued your brother, it does something to you. Yes, maybe that's the word we need, right? Yes, it does. And every single child in this school district is treated the same. They are equal. And they're valued. And they are valued. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working culture or climate? Because I hear that often. And so what would you tell them? First of all, you have to start developing an exit plan. (laughs) But that does not mean that you should not take into consideration the value of what it is that you're learning. Absolutely right. So that, again, what I take is there is not a single experience in this world that cannot be a learning experience for you. You may be very unhappy and discouraged by what it is that you're living with right now. But understand that down the road there may be a way for you to use that experience to develop something different and new. So what you need to do is look beyond where you're at. Introduce yourself into ways in which you can connect to other parts of the world. And And maybe a coach. Yes, you can get involved in university courses. You become members of organizations that are either regional or state. There are networks of all kinds of professionals to which you can connect who will then begin to introduce you to either new ideas, new locations, new places, new jobs. So what I'm saying is that you have to expand your network. I find very often that people who are very unhappy are very insular. They don't know the world out there. And they may be very unhappy, but I'm not sure that happiness necessarily is the hallmark of whether or not we are a success or not. I have a lot of very unhappy days. When I see kids hurting, we hurt. So, I mean, not every day is a happy day. And I'm not sure that happiness at the end of the day is what we should be all about. I think living and enjoying and relishing the success of the people you work with and of the students who are moving through our system, there's always a way to find a reward at the end of the day. And at the very least, understand how not to be. Right. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? I love to learn. I try to put together a system in which every single person in the school district has opportunities to learn, usually from one another, about the practices that we engage in. We also set up numerous opportunities for people to come here to teach us. We belong to a number of organizations as a district that allow us to collaborate with other school districts in a variety of different projects having to do with equity, detracking, closing the achievement gap, all those things. So we're very much involved as a district in connecting with other districts so that teachers, administrators, superintendents work with one another to share ideas and understand. What am I learning right now? I will tell you that I am trying to figure out how to make this world of technology, the world of books, the world of schools, the structure of schools. You know, technology is really breaking down the structure of education. It's going to be very different in a generation or two. You know, do I really need four walls to be educated? I'm not sure anymore. You know, when I take a look, I mean, I'm sitting in a room with you and looking out a window. That's my window to this world. The window that the kids look through is a computer screen. What does that window mean? It gives them an entree. It allows them to communicate. Kids communicate with teachers from home now on a regular basis. Families communicate with teachers. The expansion of communicative opportunities, of learning opportunities, of teaching protocols is just changing so rapidly that I continue to try to figure out a way to make sure that we can keep pace with this change without necessarily compromising our values and compromising the wealth of experience that's associated with the socialization opportunities that exist within a school environment. Working in computers can be very isolating. And as we know, with the social networking can be very dangerous for kids. So all of those components. So if you're asking me what I'm learning right now, I'm forever 
trying to figure out, go to conferences, learn new technology, introduce it uh, into the school Embrace district. some of it, right? Because sometimes it's hard. Well, I'm surrounded by it. Look at here. Yeah. I mean, we are surrounded by technology. Uh, do you have grandchildren? I do. I'm sure they're teaching you a oh lot. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's so intuitive. Do. It's just amazing. Yes. <laughs> they're born with a chip, I swear. Don't be surprised <laughs> if we don't start introducing chips into the brains of people pretty soon. So tell us, Bill, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? One of my favorite books is Malcolm Gladwell's book on outliers. I've read it a couple of times. It's just remarkable about what is there. You know, when you get into what the success stories are that they talk about here, what I love about it is the work, not ability, that ultimately defines us. It is what we do with what we have, pushing the envelope continually. It is the desire to move ourselves forward that makes us different and better, not what we are born with, even though clearly everybody's different. But if we really want to make a difference, though. Okay, great. You have a lot of responsibility. So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I run. You run. Some people think I run away from... (laughs) No, no, you look like you're in really good shape. So that's... I've been a runner for the last 45 years. I run anywhere from three to six miles a day right now. I don't race. I used to. Running is is the centerpiece of my day. Apart from family, number two is, is running. And I try every day to find anywhere from a half an hour to an hour's time. I usually don't get out until late at night. It's the nature of this job. I mean, you just here a lot of hours and you have a lot of responsibilities, but there needs to be something that allows you to separate yourself and to clear your mind. Not that running does it entirely. It gives me an opportunity to be by myself, out on the road, reflecting on what I did. A lot of ideas that that have been incorporated into this system developed as a result of long runs. It's one of those small little things that you can introduce into your life that can make a huge difference. Getting yourself into a real routine. So it has a lot of benefits, psychological benefits, certainly physical as well. It powers the brain, that's for sure. I'm not sure why, but there is some connection between regular challenging exercise and keeping the brain fresh, renewable, you know, excited to get up the next day and face it. Now, you mentioned long hours. Any advice on how we can maintain a balance in our lives? Because it's difficult to put in such long hours and you have family. Now, most leaders in this category have a hard time. We haven't found the answer to this. I'm not sure you're going to get the answer from me either because, (laughs) you know, the word is balance. If you have a family that is close to you and you feel close to your family, get involved. Be a coach. Coached my son's little league, their basketball. While I was growing up as an adult, I grew up with them. Push yourself to get involved. Get a hook that forces you to put together your schedule that takes into consideration their schedule as well. So I don't know that that's an answer, but... No, it's very practical. The other thing that I did with my board, and they've been very good about it over the years, I've told them, you own me. From Monday morning till Friday night. Saturday and Sunday, I own. Those are my two days. That was clear from the beginning. Correct. And so... They used to have Saturday meetings. We used to have to do a lot of activities on the weekend. And we have since pushed it all into that Monday to Friday. Now, that's made life uncomfortable on those Monday to Fridays because, you know, you'd love to have seven days sometimes to do everything that you would like to get completed. So they'd leave me alone on the weekends. And they honor that. But again, it's one of those things that I believe if you set that parameter. The problem is technology seeps (laughs) into your life. And this little thing hanging on my waist over here, my smartphone, means people have access to you that didn't before. question is, do you answer the phone and do you respond to every email? Those are tough decisions, not easy to make. Last question. Uh-oh. So if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? 
Do it again. Listen to your grandmother. Listen to your brother. Listen to the people who are close to you. And don't be afraid to be you. You had to stop pleasing others and recognize that you can't do it. And I think we sometimes as teachers and administrators are in the business of pleasing others. And at some point in time, you have to recognize that until you can figure out who you are and what you can be, there will always be both admirers and detractors. There'll be friends and there will be associates and they will come and go. You cannot be defined by somebody else. I wish I knew that when I was younger. I learned that later on in life, and I feel very comfortable with that now. But I can tell you that in the early years when I was in Bridgeport and Fairfield and in some of the early years that I actually worked in this position, it just tears you apart trying to allow somebody else to define you and what you are. Well, that's great advice. You know, I don't know that it's advice because I don't know who everybody else is. They've got to find that out for themselves. It is wisdom. And sometimes we get that later on after we've gone through the process of learning. So many of my friends really struggle during real difficult times within their districts. And it is because they take far more seriously some of the criticism that's leveled at them at the microphone at various public meetings, in newspapers. For whatever the reason, for me, it's like water off a camel's back. What matters is what my children, my grandchildren, my wife, these are the people that matter. These are the people who will be there when you need them. That's right. If you're not feeling well and you're sick and somebody has to take you quickly to the hospital, you know who's going to be there. Those little things in life, as small as they may appear at the time that you're deciding to embrace it, are sometimes the more critical aspects of what make us successful or not. Bill, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. (laughs) Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.